Hey y'all, welcome to Seducated, the podcast fusing business, culture, faith, and media, giving you real perspective and inspiration to help feed your entrepreneurial soul. Our podcast is dedicated to helping you succeed in your business through empowerment and growth. Come on. And I'm your Seducated host, Sheila Ellis Glasper and the owner of SEG Media Collective. Let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Seducated. We are proud and honored to have a special guest with us here today. Uh, we have Mr. Dell Gines. Mr. Gines uh, is a Senior Community Development Advisor for the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, the Omaha office. He focuses on innovative community development strategies designed to help transform rural and inner city communities. Uh, He's also a nationally recognized speaker on the subject of entrepreneurship based on economic development. And he's also the author of Grow Your Own Guide. Um, And so welcome to the show, Mr. Gines. Uh, We would love for you to just talk a little bit more about your body of work and what you're doing and, you know, how it's all relevant to everything that's happening now when it comes to Black-owned businesses in our country. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. Um, It seems like we're we're starting to see a lot of um, groups pick up on the virtual side of it. Um, you know, emerging conferences, podcasts like yours and others. Um, And especially during this time where, you know, black people, African-Americans are being hit, you know, pretty much harder than anybody else, as usual, in most of these instances. And um, during both the COVID-19 pandemic and also, you know, with the unrests, you know, caused by social injustice. So my role at the Federal Reserve, and for those of you who are not familiar with the Federal Reserve um, Bank and the Federal Reserve System, the Federal Reserve System is the monetary policy institution of the United States of America. So we're responsible for um, monetary policy, which means, you know, the rate of money in the economy, um, trying to, attempting to control inflation through interest rates, things like that. Um, so it's a pretty, you know, important role uh, in the economy. And most Um, nations have a central bank that do something similar. Um, And our department and specifically is the community development department. And every Fed bank, um, there's 12 12 regional Federal Reserve Banks. Ours is Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, um, responsible for uh, pretty much half of Missouri, uh, Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Wyoming, and then part of um, New Mexico. our departments are responsible for supporting the, the, the needs of low and moderate, what we call low and moderate income and distressed communities. So this came out of the 1970s and many of your, your um, listeners will probably be familiar with the term redlining. So Congress passed um, what is called the Community Reinvestment Act law in the 1970s to restrict banks or at least attempt to restrict banks because we know some still do in different ways redlining. And that created a mandated department in the community, in the Federal Reserve Banks of the Community Development Department. So our department is an offshoot of that. And so my primary focus is small business and economic development for our seven states. Um, and of that, you know, we really specialized in, and gained a lot of national attention for our work in what we call um, 
grow your own or um, ecosystem building, entrepreneurship ecosystem building, which is basically a strategy that looks at the network of relationships and connections at the community level that work together to support the growth and health of entrepreneurs and thereby support the local economy. And so we've done a lot of work in that space. Um, particular to, you know, people of color, we did a hard pivot like, I live in the black community in Omaha, um, the only predominantly black community in Omaha. And I came into the Federal Reserve Bank 10 years ago, almost today. And, you know, my background was in um, a lot of community work, a lot of community, I, I don't necessarily want to call it community activism, but mostly, you know, community work from, you know, neighborhood associations to developing, you know, financial literacy and business planning classes serving on boards and a wide variety of other things. And our challenge in, in Omaha, like in many other communities, uh, predominantly black communities, was the problem of you know, economics, economic control. So when I, I came into the Fed, after you know, doing time in banking professionally, running a micro uh, business accelerator and incubator, micro loan fund and Habitat for Humanity and some other things, was to step back and kind of look at the condition that has been challenging, you know, African American communities in particular, but also other communities of color, say, how can we create a solution to this or, or better practices and methodologies to kind of solve this? And so I told my boss at the time, I said that if we focus on the intersection of entrepreneurship and economic development, we'll be thought leaders in five years. And that whole concept came out of my experience of Omaha and our black community and looking at these wide things that people were trying now. The, Omaha has no problem with money in regard to philanthropy. We have multiple foundations, huge foundations. In fact, um, Warren Buffett's Daughters Foundation is here that does a lot of philanthropic work as well as other billionaires. So we're also noted for having one of the highest um, and strongest philanthropy based communities in the nation, but yet still, in 2008, a Pew report came out that said, you know, Omaha had the highest African-American poverty rate for black children in the nation and the third highest for adults. Um, and depending on which which um, poll you look at or survey research you look at since then, it fluctuates. But it, we're usually in the top 10 of those disparities. So I was like, well, with all this money going around and all of this philanthropy and all of this these things that people have been trying to do, why is it our condition is still so so tragic um and being that i used to be a business banker and doing stuff i was like fundamentally to in my opinion and again all of my comments are my opinion not the feds is that it's fundamentally about our economic infrastructure um we simply as african americans and then you can almost expand this to many communities of color the notable exception maybe being the asian community which does a little bit better but they still struggle and um or get impacted in different ways is the economy. We don't have really a good, strong business infrastructure, entrepreneurial infrastructure. Um, we're predispositionally in the labor market uh, versus ownership. And we have lower home ownership rates and, and equity ownership rates and stocks and all of those other things. And so, you know, kind of just through deductive reasoning, if you kind of look at the challenges that we face from an economic lens, which I would also argue extends into the social lens, justice lens is we don't own anything as a mm -hmm. percentage um, and that's that that's created a challenge so early on my work 
was done primarily in rural communities because rural communities were early adopters. It's something I still love to do. One of the things I miss most about the COVID and stay at home is that I can't get back out into communities across the nation. So I spent a good five years, um, 70% of my work was going into rural communities, mostly within our region or speaking at rural conferences because rural communities unique to kind of our urban communities, they see an immediate need. Many of these communities see an immediate need for different economic development solutions, right? Yeah. So you're seeing these rural communities with um, out migration of population, like they're losing 10, 15, 20% of their population every decade. So they're looking at it right away and saying, we need to fix this. The difference between rural communities and urban communities was um, is um, that there's so many other things going on in urban communities that kind of mask the fundamental need of economics. Like we'll say, you know, black people need jobs, Latino people need jobs, et cetera, but we're disconnecting them from how jobs get produced. And so then we kind of look outside of the community and outside of the, 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 where jobs are produced, which by and large is through entrepreneurs yeah. and wait for a corporation to come in and hire us. But then usually when we do bring in corporations, there's kind of this mix, mismatch between the jobs they bring and the jobs that we need. So you yeah. even have challenges there, right? So I spent five years doing that. And then um, I remember this vividly. I was speaking at a national conference and I was talking about this concept called inclusive, you know, networks within the ecosystem world that I, that I work on. And it just so happened to be the week that the riots in Baltimore were happening because an African-American man was killed in police custody. I don't know if you remember that one. So it was when all these things were pretty much clustered. Um, and you had the Eric Garner, um, hands up, yeah. don't shoot. And then around that same time period, you know, another death occurred in um, Baltimore and Baltimore was rioting and it was all over the national news. It's only a couple years ago. People forget this stuff fast. But so the two of the mayor's staff from Baltimore were there at the time. And I remember talking to them, you know, during a break of, for about an hour about why I believe, you know, riots occur. And I immediately went back to my boss and said, I know, you know, we don't really go out and ask people to have us come in and speak. Right. Like people just say, hey, the Fed has some information or I go out and talk in a community and they'll tell another community they'll invite me. And that's why I was doing so much work in rural. But I said, we need to be much more intentional about focusing on urban issues, which is really my original intent coming to the Fed is to be able to address some of the issues that I was concerned about. And so from there, we, um, we did a couple things. So first I held a series of regional roundtables on called um, entrepreneurship as a, a economic development strategy in African-American communities, got great response from around the region. Um, then we wrote the black women startups report, which got a lot of national attention to, which, yes. which, focuses on what black women who, who are the fastest growing group of business owners in the nation, you know, are facing in their perspective on their motivations and startups. Um, the most recent uh, report that we released is um, the guide to ecosystem building in communities of color that I co-wrote with Rodney Sampson, who's the godfather of ecosystem building from out of Atlanta. And now we have in draft uh, form that hopefully will be out by early August, a short guide on the recovery for small business of, of color. Wow. Um, so we've been doing a lot of that work, uh, 
you know, as well as doing some things internally in the Fed system. Um, I chair, I shouldn't say chair because we don't really have that kind of structure, but I kind of pulled together an internal system from all the Fed banks, uh, uh, which is a committee that focused specifically on the needs of small businesses of color. And so we've been working a lot on that. So I do a lot of uh, combina combination of both urban and rural. So I'm actually pretty unique in that regard. You, you don't see a lot of, yeah. you know, black guys from the inner cities that do a whole lot of work in rural communities. But, you know, I love doing it. And then I do a lot of work, you know, on urban inner city issues and communities of color. So it's, it's, it's good because a lot of the needs are the same. They just break differently like the context for them are, are, are different. So that's the big, big me in a nutshell. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. And I mean, we need you here in Manhattan, Kansas, <laughs> in some of the initiatives um, that we've been trying to push when it comes to uh, organizing our entrepreneurs of color here and presenting our needs um, to um, economic development, officers and the mayor and the uh, chamber of commerce here um and so yeah we'll definitely be referring to your guide as you um, put that information out and um we're so thankful to have you here on the podcast because this is some great information you know and not just for our local people but you know our business owners of color all over the country um, so one of the first things I wanted to ask you is, um, and you kind of hit on this, um, as you were speaking earlier, um, the coronavirus pandemic, um, has really done some, uh, irreparable harm to, uh, black businesses across the country and businesses of color and the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research, uh, recently put out, um, some information saying that 41% of all Black-owned businesses have closed permanently between February and April, um, which is a devastating number um, of our businesses. And, you know, when it comes to this crisis, because I would call it a crisis um, to have, you know, that many businesses close in that short amount of time. Um, but when it comes to this crisis, um, why do you think that Black-owned businesses have been hit so hard uh, when it comes to this COVID-19 era and, you know, what can people do to better support the businesses of color and Black-owned businesses that are still open? Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the author of that report, Rob Fairley, is, he's, he's probably, he, and he actually came out with the full working paper earlier this week, I believe. Okay. Um, yeah, and firms of color across the board, businesses of color across the board were hit harder. Um, so it was uh, 41% for African-Americans. It was like 36 some odd percent for Latinos. That uh, maybe off, maybe it was 32%. Um, it was 26% oh, for Asian. It was only 17% for white businesses. And then immigrants who were hit by 36% and women 25%, if memory serves me correctly from the numbers. and there's a variety of reasons for that. Some of it, as it was stated in the paper, were the industries that many black businesses are in. And so, yeah. but, but see, even when we talk, we say that we have to understand how historical structural racism and social influences influence the business clusters. So one of the things I point out in the black women um, business report 
was that roughly 70-ish percent of, of all black women businesses are in like four industry clusters, you know, so very concentrated. So anytime you have high levels of business concentrated in certain industries, when those industries get hit for whatever reason, let's say economic downturn or some other, you're going to have a disproportionate number of those businesses impacted. So then it asks you to go to the second level question, which most of us don't do, which is say, well, why are so many of these businesses clustered in these few industries? And that's the question that I would argue is, is one that we need to ask, especially when we're looking towards the recovery and, and more economic justice for communities of color. So you're talking about issues like how do you credit and get the necessary access to credit and capital? It's no secret to me that these businesses, especially with black women, are going into businesses that have lower barriers to entry. They require less money to start up. They, they're, they're able to, in many instances, use you know, their God-given intellect and talent to start a business with very little resources, and that's what they're doing. So you have low barriers to entry, and that's making it easier to get into these accessible spaces. Plus, historically, you know, looking at businesses that are known to be needed because we don't have good education and information systems in our communities, then most people are being steered towards or just because of socialization and what they see other people do into these kind of smaller type firms. The good thing, though, I think it's going to serve as well, especially with black women. The reason I key on black women is not to exclude black men, because that's definitely important. But black women constitute 60 percent of all black businesses in the uh, out there. Mm-hmm. So six out of every 10 black owned businesses owned by a black woman. There's an imbalance at this point that's happening that where black men, <laughs> black men are going the opposite way of black women. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you look at black women, they're now being a, a greater educated, um, more business owners, the, the black, the male female wage gap, I've, I've argued and guessed that Black men and black women will have equal wages probably within the next couple years or decade, which is unlike any other ethnic group. So a lot of this is because of the decimation. And again, this is my opinion of the black male in the American society. Like you've had it. Black men were hit very hard by mass incarceration. Our education levels are almost polar opposite of what we're seeing in black women who are becoming some of the fastest, highest educated individuals in the nation. So you kind of have this social fragmentation that's going on between black men and black women. And when we say 60 percent, it's not that that's a bad thing because that data is not good or bad in and of its own. It's the context for it. So we have to ask ourselves, in my opinion, black women are carrying a whole lot of the load for the black community as a whole, and in part because of the challenges that are being faced by black men in, the, in society. So it's important when we look at kind of these numbers to look at the context, because I'm excited that black women are stepping up in the entrepreneurship. You know, I think it is worthy of clap, you know, and, and applaud that they're taking on this burden. But the question becomes, is this burden being equally distributed across the entire black community? Yeah. I, I think that's one of the questions that we often don't talk about at the Federal Reserve because um, we, we're we just now being more comfortable as a system talking about race and social justice and inequity just because of the nature of, of, of how we, 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 um, 
we are as an institution, but we're now we're really taking much more proactive steps to address things like, you know, racial justice and equity at the Fed and considering that through economic, you know, education or in research. But those are things that we as black people really need to step back and explore is look at, okay, it's not just about, you know, what is being produced, it's about how it's being produced. So I would argue that we need to help African-Americans as a whole create businesses across the entire spectrum. I used to have a presentation that I would say, our strategy should be in, up, and through. So we need more black people in businesses, we need more black businesses scaling up and growing, and we need more black businesses across all the spectrums of businesses. Statistically speaking, we're not even present in wholesale and manufacturing businesses in the United States. And these are some of the businesses that create the majority, uh, the largest percentage of revenue and hire the majority yeah. of people. Um, emerging technology field, we're, we're very much not in those spaces like FinTech, um, high growth technology, all of these other things. These are things where if I was going to do a strategic plan with the black community in the United States to say, how do we effectively develop our economy? You know, I would do, obviously we would do a SWOT analysis, but then we have to do some brainstorming to say, okay, how is it, how can we create um, black businesses that are ahead of the curve and not behind the curve? You know, so because if you think about it, the whole concept of social justice is catching up with the dominant group, right? And I made a comment the other day because every now and then when the mood strikes me, I'll do a, a, my, a Facebook morning deal. And I said, so if, you, if we think rationally about a race, right? So if, if two people are running, you know, starting this way, and then the third person gets a head start of 50 meters, the only way that these two people can catch the person that got the head start is how? Is to run faster. So how do you run faster in a, in a capitalist society, in a democratic capitalist society? One is policies that correct some of the challenges of the past, which we've been hearing more conversation of, you know, discriminatory policies, policies that are directly or indirectly, you know, contributing to social injustice or economic injustice. We have to root those out, clear those up, clean them up, make sure that there's better policies that are more, you know, just and fair. That's one side. The other side, it, the economic side is to be able to develop and innovate and create new economies that go to scale faster than average. So for black people, where, is, where does that come from? It comes from innovation, technology, or tech-enabled firms or innovation in traditional firms that allow them to compete at a greater level. Those are the only two ways that you can get it. If not, that race, that gap is still still there. Yeah. You're yeah. not you're not gonna want, right? So if if you know the the, the traditional white American, not all, because there's some white Americans like in, in many parts of the community that are struggling very, very hard. But as a general rule and on average throughout history, the white white American has been given an advantage over people of color. And this advantage on average has allowed them to have access to greater capital, technology, education, and training, which allowed them to improve their economy faster, you know, as, as you know, particular race. So we're not asking for, you know, white, the white communities to be held back. 
And I think that's how some of the narrative often comes out in the conversation is that for black people to get ahead, white people have to pull, be pulled back. And that is one way to approach it. So if I'm using that race metaphor as an example, one of the ways to reduce the gap that 50 yard head start is to tell that person that started faster, that got the head start to stop and let everybody else catch up. That's not practical nor rational for a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of those reasons are economic. You know, you don't want to shut down the whole economy by trying to do this weird social experiment. So then the question becomes, how do we accelerate the businesses that communities of color create and produce? Right. And that's by prioritizing having better efficient economic development systems that help prioritize the creation and growth of businesses in these communities. To me, that's the most logical way to go about improving our economic condition. Yes, that is, you know, you brought up a lot of key points um, there. And even when I think about, you know, um, black women, you know, starting and, and having a, you know, higher amount of businesses versus black men, you know, I think about even my business, um, which were a social media marketing agency and my husband, who is a black man, pushed me, you know, to start this business, knowing that I could be successful in running this business while he continues to work his nine to five. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? And um, he helps me make a lot of the decisions in our business. But if we switched roles, would the business have been as successful here right now? You know, with the support and even just the idea of, you know, when you look at black women, who have been able to rise in the ranks when it comes to executive level positions um, in corporate America. I mean, there are numbers showing that as well, um, almost like, you know, white America is more accepting to us being in these leadership roles. And, you know, we can talk about a lot of when it comes to, you know, how, you know, black men deal with that intimidation and people, you know, may feel that way about them. And when it, you know, breaking all that down. But um, that was a really key point that you mentioned is something that I don't think we talk about enough, you know, even within our own community. Um, and so you kind of talked about the published um, study about uh, black women being the fastest group of um, growing group of entrepreneurs in our country. Um, and you talked about how, um, you know, we Oftentimes, I mean, we have struggles as a, as black business owners with getting and accessing capital. And I think part of it is an educational piece as well um, about knowing what that process looks like. And just also, you know, I'm a black owned business, but I'm also a first generation business owner as well. So I can't go, you know, to people in my family and ask, you know, how do I do this? Um, like I did buying a home. You know, my parents could help me with that. But when it came to, you know, getting a business loan, that was something that they couldn't help me with. So what are some practical tips um, that you could give for us business owners of color as we're working to scale our businesses and gain that capital that we need to do so? Yeah, and it's, it's you have to take as much time working on the business as working in the business. That, let me correct that because that's not accurate. You, as, a, as an entrepreneur, you always have to find the balance, the correct balance between working on the business and working in the business. Because sometimes you'll be spending more time doing one than the other or vice versa. Um, and one of the challenges is, is that as a solopreneur, which most 
black owned businesses are most businesses in America are, but black owned businesses are even at a higher rate. Um, it requires you to be the everything all the time. So when you have a scenario like that, it's important to recognize that if you really want to do what you do better, you have to learn how to do it better. And, you know, sometimes that means taking a time out or allocating specific times throughout the week just for continued education and learning for your own purposes. So when you're, when you're out grinding, sometimes it's easy to just, I'll give you an example. So during COVID, I started doing woodworking, right? Never did it before. My dad was big into it. He built this clubhouse out for my, my kids before he died in the backyard. And I was like, oh, my kids are pretty much grown. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, put some woodworking stuff in there. Right. So I'll go out there and I'll spend a couple hours just because it's one of the few things I found weirdly, because I normally don't like doing manual labor type stuff <laughs> that I don't have to think like if anything else yeah. I'm doing. My mind is just always running. Even if I'm in the house, then it's running. But when I'm out there, I'm just looking at, okay, how do I measure this? How do I cut this? Yeah. Well, I'm not that good at it, <laughs> but I spend a lot of time on it. Right. And now I'm good enough to do like basic stuff. Like I made my daughter a little house for a cat and some, yeah. some stuff like that. But it, by no means I'm a master craftsman. Now I could say I'm what I'm producing is good enough, but if I really wanted to go to the next level, I would have to figure out now, Oh, here's really how you use a miter saw. Here's really how you use a speed triangle. Here's all of these things that I bought and I have as tools, but I'm only probably using them five to 10% as effective as they could be used because I haven't taken the time to learn how to use them as effectively as possible to build better stuff. And that's the key thing. And, and it's not all there's one something to be said for self-learning. Like we all have access now in ways that our forefathers and mothers never did through the internet, you know, YouTube, man, I, I'm on TikTok, man. I follow all these builders on TikTok, right? Just watching them out yeah. for no reason. So we have this access. So, but there's a difference between, you know, self-learning and being able to be taught by other people formally or informally or be mentored by other people. And that's where the deficit in our networks are, is that yes, we do have a business density network. There's probably not a lot of black women who are doing podcasts within your social network. There's probably folks that are in your network that do podcasting that you could reach out to, but maybe they're not, you know, culturally competent or not accessible to you. So even in our communities, and this is why we, we work so heavily on con talking about the ecosystem, because it's not just about, the energy that that entrepreneur brings, that energy has to be matched or exceeded by the environment that supports that entrepreneur. So are we putting and developing the right and culturally competent and accessible things around our entrepreneurs to help them start and scale as fast as it makes sense for them to do based upon what they want to do? And that's, that's the challenge. So now let me back up and, and hit your question again in a different way. So now we know that we don't really have strong environments that support entrepreneurs in a variety of mechanisms. So then what does that black entrepreneur do? That black entrepreneur has to be more intentional about connecting and networking to people that can help them support. We often don't look at, look at that. So now with digital communications, like me and you are on Zoom, 
with digital communications, how can we create a, uh, a, a regular connection of black women podcasters, for example, where you can learn from each other? Are there ways that we can access other forms of, of knowledge that are easily understandable and can be easily implementable? Are our entrepreneurs, you know, really saying, I'm going to carve out five days, five hours a week out of my 40 hour week or 20 hour week, because most of us are part time. Um, to specifically learn how to do my craft better or faster, all of those different kind of things. And so that's what, what black entrepreneurs need to do. And I'm not even talking about the COVID recovery stuff, which is a whole different animal. I'm talking about those that still manage to um, stay in existence during this time period. Yeah. Yeah, that's good um, information. And I mean, even when it comes to like specifically working with banks, you know, I know last year we got our first um, SBA loan, but the process was so long um, for us and um, it took us over eight months um, to receive yeah, the funds and um, a lot of digging into our personal um our personal finances and taxes, even though the business had been running for, you know, over uh, three years at that point um, with, you know, 12 month contracts in hand, uh, meetings with the president, bank president and everything. Um, And that's just my experience. And so, um, and then we only got, um, you know, a quarter of the the funds that we really needed in order to scale our business, um, which sometimes I think may have hurt us a little bit because we didn't get the amount that we really needed. Um, these are the challenges, you know, that, you know, as you know, um, you know, business owners of color face in different communities. Um And so what advice do you have specifically, like even just for, you know, business owners of color that are trying to gain access to capital? Um, And and I think the networking piece is really important, like you were saying, too, because, I mean, even we've formed a group of black entrepreneurs here in the Flint Hills. And one of our um, one of our members, actually, um, she told me, you know, hey, you need to go to banks outside of our community. Um, because this is what I did. You know, I went to a bank in Atlanta and I got this, you know, and it's like the networking, definitely I see the value in that, but you know, is there anything else that, you know, you would have as advice um, for us? And and again, this, so one of the challenges and why a lot of, from, from outreach calls that we've had that, that black, and Latinos did not get access to PPP loans, you know, stimulus loans, was because they did not have their infrastructure in place to be able to produce the necessary financial reports, right? So again, that's point one, depending on your your business size, you know, just make sure that you're filing your taxes, you have your tax returns, and you have a basic financial statements. Now this is, and again, this is not universal, because if you're only making 10000 a year and you're good with it, then going through all these complex solutions, I mean, you got to file your taxes, otherwise you can get in trouble. But like all the extra bells and whistles, you may not want to. And if you're good with that, then be good with that. But if you really are trying to do a scalable business or a larger business, you need to get these things in place so that you can punch a button and give the banker what they want if you feel you're going to need bank financing. Um, Because banks are not necessarily the best places for startups and uh, to go. And they're not necessarily the best places for people with limited assets, service-based companies without a lot of collateral. 
to go. And so people, again, it goes back to your education point. People need to understand what banks are, what their mission is, because they have a particular mission and regulatory environment they have to operate in, and then how to access them if that's where they need to go. Um, and credit and capital is a barrier limitation to scale-ups. Like what you said is consistent with our survey of small our small business credit survey we did at the system, which said that black women, um, only 40% of black women or 40% of black women with employees only received some or none of the funds they asked when they went to a bank compared to like 27% of all other women. So it, it, it is a thing. It's not just your experience. It's a collective experience of large. Yeah, companies. totally. So then the question becomes strategically, okay, if we know that we're only going to get a percentage of capital we expect that we need, then what do we do? Then we have to take different strategic methodologies, lean startup, sweat equity, bartering, other things that will get us to what we need. So it becomes more of a strategic growth plan that has scenarios in it. So if I get 100% of my funding, this is what I'm going to do. 50% of my funding, this is what I'm going to do. 0% of my funding, this is what I'm going to do. And, it, and, it, and it's sad that we have to do this, but we do not have what I would argue is, is the level of sophistication across business lending as a whole. And we're just talking about lending. You know, I think there's a space for us to innovate around equity, you know, capital, not just loans, but actually investment type of capital, which is a different animal that most of us are not taught. Like I spent years teaching business, business owners and business plan classes, and I still am learning the ropes of the other side of the aisle, which is angel and venture capital investments and how that field works. Because a cat can get a million dollars of venture capital and have a 400 credit score. You walk into a bank with a 400 credit score, they're going to you ain't getting nothing. <laughs> throw you out of the building. Yes. So it's a different ball game on that side of the aisle, but it requires different business structures and different ways to go through it. So if, so if I could have, if I could rave a magic wand, right. And somebody said, tell me one thing that you could do if you could only do one, even though I know that there's multiple things we need to do. If I could only do one, I say it was, it would be increase the education around entrepreneurship and business ownership, starting from the time that baby, that black baby is born, right? Because they're not getting it in their social networks because there's still not a lot of us that are entrepreneurs that they can look at and see, or they only see us from a distance. They're not getting it in school. So they're, they're going through K through 12 and not getting any education, relatively speaking on business ownership, entrepreneurship, or things of that nature. And once they do become adults, the level of classes that they can get, go and learn how to do that are very limited in most communities or very narrow classes that don't address the wide variety of types of businesses that may want to be produced. So we're at a huge deficit of knowledge and it's not just us, it's America as a whole, but it particularly breaks harder for African-Americans because we don't have the informal knowledge systems and relationships to develop businesses too. So I would say from the womb, through the business creation plus processes where we need to flood our communities with information and awareness on how to become entrepreneurs of all different types. 
Yeah, that's really good. And, you know, and in closing, I just had, uh, you know, a final question for you, uh, Mr. Gines. And so um, with the recent racial events that have been happening around our country and have been happening um, 400 plus years, right? Um, you've got George Floyd's uh, murder um, and then protests um, that have broken out all across our country and still happening. Um, and so people are more and more, I'm noticing even myself, I'm getting inquiries of people that are wanting to work with us because we are a state certified minority owned, woman owned business. Um, people are looking for directories to support uh, black owned businesses. There are stories coming out about different black owned businesses that are seeing increase um, in their support and in customers and revenue. And so uh, my question to you, um, Mr. Gines, is really how can we as Black business owners really leverage this momentum um, that's happening? Because I've never experienced anything like this um, before. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of our, um, you know, my counterparts um, haven't either. Yeah. You know, well, first of all, let me say this. I hate, I hate the fact that it takes black people getting publicly killed for people to do the right thing. Right. So I, I want to start there. Um, and more specifically to your, your, your point, I think um, it is a thing. I mean, and it, it, this is an unprecedented time and people are looking for ways to do different. So we do have to acknowledge that. And a lot of that is people are considering ways that they, or, or have looked at themselves and said, how can I do better? And one of those ways is people saying, I can support black businesses. So now is the time. And one of the sad things about it, though, is that so many businesses have closed that they can't even take advantage of, you know, kind of this new interest. But those that are in existence, now is the time to really have be able to get out to the public very clearly what it is you do, why it's a value and how they can connect and communicate with you. Like simple, basic things like get you a free website that, you know, pops up on Google, um, start a Facebook page with your business, be proactive in terms of communicating. If you're business to business, you know, make a sales call or shoot a sales email you know, at this point in time and say, hey, you know, I'm interested, you know, I'm a, I'm a certified African-American woman-owned firm that does this. Do you need any of these things? Like now is the time in, in these kind of inflection points in history, now is the time for those businesses who are, can take advantage of it to do so. Yeah. And my concern is that we're, it's not a concern. It's a reality that black people are facing so much at this time yeah. that for some of us, it just may be so emotionally or psychologically difficult to get into that space. And I understand that, you know, because I've been feeling the same way. So if you can, then be proactive about your marketing, your communication, your sales game, at this point of time, try to enhance your visibility through social media, through web-based platforms, because we're still doing a lot of social distancing. If you have people that are one degree of separation away, ask them to make introductions. Little things like that where, you know, because business, if you can't sell, you're you're not a business owner, right? You're a hobbyist. So if you can't sell or develop sales processes or marketing processes, which is the only thing that drives revenue in a business, 
then you're probably not a good business owner. And those are the areas where right now you're going to need to use more, more than ever before. Try to piggyback off each other, you know, leverage each other's skills. If people have different skills in the spaces, reach out to each other and say, how can we help each other? You know, black people, we can't do this alone. We never have. I mean, you, you know, when Harriet Tubman was going back to get slaves, we always look at Harriet Tubman, but it wasn't just her. There was a lot of people yeah. supporting the Underground Railroad throughout that entire process. Um, Jim Crow, these communities that we started under segregation, these were all communal. Yes, there was capitalism and entrepreneurship there, but there was a greater level of mutual support. That's what we need right now, especially during COVID and the recovery. So how can we we help each other you know, get through this from a business perspective? How can we leverage each other's talents? Maybe I got a connection that you don't have that I can put you on to. You know, are we thinking like that at this point? Um, because truly this is going to take not just us together as a people, but the broader community to get us to where we need to be during the recovery coming out of COVID. And now is a time where people are talking about social injustice and better ways to improve equity for black people. And we need to, to, as business owners, ensure that we're inserting ourselves into that conversation and saying that it's not just about police policy. It's about an entire system that has been unjust and unequitable since the first Christmas addicts or whoever it was that got off the boat, you know, they brought us over. Um, So that's, that's kind of my take on that. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's wonderful. Um, A wonderful way to close when it just comes to trying to do this thing together um, and recover together. And so I really appreciate all the, Um, information that you shared with us today, Mr. Gines. And I just wanted to allow you, um, if there's a place where people can follow you um, online, on social media, um, if I could drop that for people in the show notes um, and also on on our um, video link, um, please let us know. Yeah, for sure. So um, they can follow Twitter on IamDelGines and on Facebook, Del Gines, and also on LinkedIn, Del Gines. So you can fault, just put that in there. From the Fed, I do encourage you all to go check out the Fed website. We got a lot of good stuff on there, stuff about the digital divide, um, obviously my work, workforce work, and then our broader stuff that we do. That's kcfed.org or kansascityfed.org. You can go to kansascityfed.org and get there and look at all the things we do. We got a great boss. I. My boss is an African-American woman, the best person I've ever worked for. Um, she's allowed me to be great. we got a great woman president in Esther George, who's one of the, I'm a cynic, and she's one of the best leaders at that scale I've ever seen. Um, I just, she's just one of the great communicators and so down to earth. So I want you all to stay connected to the, to the Fed, learn more about us. If there's something we can help you with, just ask. I'll tell you if we can, but if we can, I'll definitely try. So... All of you, good luck who are listening. You know, work hard, build your businesses, support your families, support the community, and we'll make it through this and we'll be better in the long run. All right, all right. Thank you again, uh, Mr. Dines. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast, Educated, on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And until next time.